0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. In Parshat Mishpatim, we receive our first major collection of laws. The collection's opening addresses slavery, likely because it's a category close to the hearts of recently freed slaves, and then it moves to topics such as kidnapping, harm to a pregnant woman, damages to crops, and thievery. There's a brief address of laws regulating one's relationship with the divine, the prohibition to utilize sorcery, and then discussion of the proper treatment of weaker members of society, the poor, orphaned, and widowed, principles also deeply connected to our experience at as the weak members of Egyptian society. Monumental guidelines regarding judicial integrity as well are included, alongside how we should be treating our enemies. The Parsha ends in chapter 24 with the ratification of this covenant with God. It is essentially the closure of the Sinai experience, replete with the nation's gathering, a meal, and God's invitation to Moshe to come to the heavens and receive the luchot. Today I welcome a new guest, Dr. Yoel Finkelman, who is currently a Managing Editor at the English Division of Korin Magad Publisher. Mm -hmm. He previously served as a curator of the Chaim and Chana Salomon Judaica Collection at the National Library of Israel. Yoel, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So I think we'll just say at the outset that today's episode, our conversation is going to be a slight departure from uh, sort of like the stated theme, but I think that all rules, and maybe this will also relate to our content, are, are best broken at some point. So it's, it's okay that that's going to be a slightly different uh, direction for today's conversation. We will actually touch upon a 19th century commentator, but we'll get there when we get there. So why don't we sort of bring, we'll start with the Parsha, obviously, with Parshat Mishpatim. Sort of this, we might even think of it as a little bit of a letdown or sort of the mundane, everyday detail of, of the Harsinai experience and where that can develop into, into the actual world we live in. So why don't you bring us into that, River Feels Right for you?
1: I actually would like to take a point from from Rabbi Sachs, uh, Rabbi Jonathan, Rabbi Dr. Lord Jonathan Sachs, um, who in several of his divrei Torah on on Mishpatim points to a kind of anti-climax in the transition between Parshat Yitro and Parshat Mishpatim. Parshat Yitro begins or includes Ma'amadhar Sinai, the giving of the Torah at Sinai, this kind of static moment, world-transforming moment in history. The divine descends into uh, into the present with the Torah, this moment of of grand revelation. And then we get to Parshat Mishpatim, and we're talking uh, about the nitty-gritty of damages. We're talking about uh, debts. We're talking about uh, kind of uh, slave relations and economic relations. And and it seems kind of anticlimactic. And, And Rabbi Sachs points out that a revelation, a kind of cosmic experience like Mount Sinai, which is... He says, to is a mode of sanctifying human life, and and therefore it requires attention to the workaday realities of economic law, employer-employee relations, and the like. If if revelation, if God's instructions to the people, do not translate into uh, into how society functions and how it deals with conflict and how it deals with economics and how it deals with the structure of government, then uh, then we have a problem. Then the then the revelation is is inert um which kind of makes parshat shufteim excuse me, Parshat Mishpatim along with Parshat Shoftim in Dvarim, the kind of two, um, two modes, uh, two centers of discussion of the relationship of Torah in general and Halakha in particular to, uh, government collective life, um, public life, uh, Mishpat and, uh, meaning economic law and, and constitutional law more broadly, which, um, which, you know, the first time, uh, Yosefa, you asked me to join the podcast, I said, listen, I'm really not a Tanakh person, I'm the wrong person. And then you asked again, and I said, fine, I'll do it. But uh, one of the issues that really does concern me are are theological and religious questions of religion and public life. Uh, And here, I think, uh, to kind of riff off of the Parsha, if you will, Um, to think a little bit more about the challenges, uh, difficulties um, that face an attempt to get Terat to regulate morally and effectively um, something like, uh, particularly in the context of Israel, a modern modern nation state, but not only.
0: Right. So if we could take that back one step, uh, we might think about the fact that so many of us are familiar with the idea that from a legal perspective, the biblical law is certainly not enough, right? By by no one's measures, was it going to be enough just the psukim and the Torah? They're, it's very First of all, they obviously don't cover all examples. Uh, we would have to extrapolate what they mean, how they could be applied to different scenarios. I'm right now doing another fun run through Mishnayot. And Mishnayot also, I mean, you read them and you're there's so many things I need clarifying. So of course, if we take that back a few steps and we roll it back to Torah, that of course will be the case. But you're Question today, I believe, is slightly different than that. Meaning, the question is: even if we assume that all the answers or all the permutations might be able to be extrapolated from the laws of the Torah and the Torah Shabbat, how would we even really go about doing that in a in a sovereign state setting? Am I understanding the question correctly?
1: Yeah. Uh, and particular, I want to be cautious about this, um, particularly in the sovereign state session, what is kind of happening out there in the world at the moment in terms of halachic and religious thinking for, for big constitutional state economic questions? Um, and particularly from my perspective, um, I'm... I'm pretty critical of of those attempts. Um, I think that there are some very, very significant fundamental questions that need to be addressed when we think about what you just called translating kind of the the, certainly the biblical law, even the Peh, translating it into kinds of constitutional and state questions. Um, and what I kind of want to do is raise those challenges not so much because I think I can solve them, but to articulate them so that when we think about these questions, we can be more aware of of what we're doing, which might succeed in doing it better or might succeed in suggesting that we're not quite ready to do it better. But first, I want to clarify a little bit um, exactly the context in which I'm trying to address these questions. If you kind of walk into any... The Jewish bookstore chain Dabrishir in uh, in Israel, which uh, sells kinds of accessible Judaica um, all over the place. You'll discover that they have sections on economics. They have sections on governance. They have sections on statehood in halakha. There are a series of institutions uh, with publishing arms and research arms. Um, And I, I, I mention a handful, not because I want to point these out particularly. I'm certainly not interested in, you know, in just kind of exemplify the the trend, which is which is putting front and center thinking about statehood and governance according to halakha, whether that's institutions like Machon Keter Kalkala Alpi Hatorah, um, uh, organizations like Machon Hatorah which deals largely with agriculture, um, but not only an important book by by a fellow named Ido Rechnitz called Medina Halakha, which deals with constitutional questions. Uh, all of these have background, they go back earlier to works like uh, Rav Herzog, the first chief rabbi, not the first chief rabbi, but the uh, the chief rabbi, uh, mid-century chief rabbi, uh, who wrote a, a book called Chukali Yisrael, Constitution uh To Israel, for Israel, according to the halacha. There are institutions like Torah Tlechima, which deals with military uh, ethics according to Torah and halacha. And it's kind of, um, and again, I raise those as examples, not because they're. uh, not because I want to discuss the particular conclusions that they reach, but to, to think about it in a context of an enormous amount of resources that is being put into research and publication about the big picture questions, not the mi- not the small picture questions like, uh, is this particular imported ingredient kosher? Um, how do we deal with, uh, with a product that was a damaged product that I bought? Um, um, but the kind of macro issues uh, of running an economic system according to Halakha, running a military, a modern military, according to Halakha and according to Torah.
0: So why don't we go to those questions that we may want to ask about how we can go from taking these laws that develop from the Torah and Torah Shabel Peh and trying to uh, project them onto or create a system in the modern state of Israel that uh, that squares with some of these ideas. Where 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 should that more sort of critical thought process be happening in your opinion?
1: So I, w- I want to touch on on four points. Um, and the first one you already kind of raised in your earlier question, which I sidestepped and I, and I want to come back to, which is about the idea of how we expand on and build by analogy from mm. from earlier sources. And I kind of want to describe what I think often happens in halachic decision-making. Um, because because the Gemara and the, the kind of classical language of Torah Shebaal is in cases, less in rules. Mm-hmm. The Gemara and the Mishnah talks in cases what the rule is, and then the Torah Shebaal kind of tries to develop, uh, well, if this is the Halakha in this case, but not in that case, what can we understand about the general principles that are operating? And that is to say that when halachists see a case that is not identical, they see a situation that's not identical to the source cases, they have to begin working by analogy. Uh, And sometimes, you know, that can be pretty straightforward. I don't know, you know, tomatoes, uh, potatoes come into the uh, into the into the old world from the new world. Pardon the expression, from the Americas to Europe. um, And somebody's got to figure out what bracha you make on them. And by analogy, it's not that difficult. The analogy is pretty straightforward, and then you know what bracha to make on on. On potatoes, uh, along comes the pineapple, and things get a little more complicated because botanically it's a little more complicated, and so you have to kind of work by analogy. <laughs> but because teresh has this tension in it between the human and the divine, it's teresh it's Loba if you will. It's it's God did not give leave the teresh in heaven. He challenged us to be active participants in the process of teresh and so when we have straightforward analogies, uh, skim are in a position to be pretty confident that they've got it right, or at least that their position is clear. But when we begin to see uh, greater jumps between the source case and its discussion and what we're trying, the analogy that we're trying to build, uh, we need more human input. And and poskim might become less confident that what they're doing is interpreting the text, and might start to wonder whether they're imposing on the text. Um, and so, so there's an enormous amount of halachic literature dealing with cases of of um, conflict, economic conflict between individuals related to the to this week's parasha, to mishpatim, pretty directly. Um, But then you get developments that begin to go beyond the typical debates or or economic challenges um, between individuals or bodies. And we start seeing modern developments, let's say things like a corporation, right, which which it's not the only halachic way to think about it but one way to think about a corporation is kind of developed shutafut a developed partnership an ownership of uh, joint ownership of the same of the same um of the same piece of property well the analogy between a shutafut between two or three people who jointly own let's say a piece of land and a multinational corporation that's sold on stock markets um, you know, the analogy becomes becomes more stretched. And the work that has to be done to get between the classic halakhic source and the contemporary situation becomes bigger. Um, and in some cases, there's an awareness of this. In some cases, at least that I've read, this kind of making these arguments by, anal- by analogy without quite realizing how big how big the jump is. And if we move, let's say, there's already been a couple of hundred years since the foundings of corporations in Europe, um, but, you know, jump then to short-selling stock options in bundled high-risk mortgages, uh, you know, the kinds of things that (laughs) led to the financial challenges of 2008. And then the questions of analogies become even bigger. And the bigger and bigger the analogy... Um, the less confident uh, it's the the less it's it's easy for a postake to be confident that the analogy is a good one and really is drawing out of the sources rather than imposing itself on the sources.
0: You're taking the case of economics, meaning we all countries have laws that govern economics, and so the moment there's, there's a parallel system that we could tap into. correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that it will raise the uncertainty or the amount of questions or lack of confidence that we'll have in the Torah world. I'll just take an example from a world that I do I'm involved in. Okay, I'm a yotzer lacha, and so I answer questions and studied in depth Hilchot Nida. Now we also all the time use analogies. Okay, we're constantly using analogies. However, the the vast majority of them actually have base examples from earlier Talmudic literature that are pretty parallel to uh, to what we're dealing with today. So whether it'll just be underneath the rubric of medical or underneath the rubric, right? The, these the categories exist and. And the piece that I think is more important is that there is no hilchonida to be compared to in any other system. So we are the only system that is, and that raises it sort of because your options are limited. You also don't have that amount of questions. Uh, the question: I mean, There's much, there's many questions, and there's many, many poskim and many books and many things to read and and, and analyze. But as opposed to what you're saying, meaning this whole concept grew from another planet that itself is regulated. And so that makes it even more complicated Mm -hmm. for the halacha to come in and be an authoritative voice.
1: I I think you're absolutely right, although I think that that also um, works to the advantage, makes it a little bit easier. Because, um, well, sometimes some some of these works talk about... You know, what's the ideal economic system, according to halakha, capitalism, socialism, or something in between. Mm -hmm. But actually what you point to is that throughout the history of halakha, um, Jews have never created the economic system. They've only reacted to it. You know, they didn't create the Greco-Roman system. They didn't create the medieval system. They didn't create the Renaissance and early modern system. Um, they didn't create modern capitalism. They just reacted to it um, and tried to and tried to run khush and mishpat uh, within those within those contexts. Uh, mm-hmm. And so and so, it, in some ways, it makes it easier for Jews to let's say inherit corporations or inherit a stock market or inherit um, you know global capitalism because. Those are just facts on the ground which they don't really have which doesn't really have an effective an effective way of changing and so kind of some of the what would we do building from first principles what would we do if we could start from nothing um become very very theoretical questions because you can't start from nothing you can only start with you know credit cards um We're not doing away with credit cards, like it or not. We can only, you know, how does that interplay with Hilchot Kinyan? Uh, Again, these are questions that that Poskim answer, but they're they're given, you know, they're given the the economic facts on the ground and not asked to invent them.
0: Right. And so in your opinion, what are some of the voices in our tradition, whether it be Rishonim or who you think have, while well, they're not first principles, but they think are good guiding principles for ways to go about trying to have a Torah system that can fit into these world systems?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I, I want to point to three sets of sources. The first is that the sources in the Jewish tradition that most speak to questions of communal and national governance um, are sources that are generally not studied in the Beit Midrash. And those are sources like Pinkasim, Pinkasekihila, uh, early modern Jewish record books that record legal decisions, decision making, appointments, um, rules and regulations of communities. Um, and, you know, rabbis had some influence on, on the governance of, and halakha had some influence on the governance of. Of semi-autonomous Jewish communities in the in the early modern period, um, but for the most part, decisions were made on practical grounds by uh, wealthy men who were <laughs> formally elected, but that didn't mean that you know that it was uh, a democracy. <laughs> but and and again, I'm not suggesting that we kind of transfer you know Vad arba aratzot into the modern Knesset, the the large multi-regional uh, um, uh, Eastern European. Um, Jewish self-government system of the early modern period. I'm not suggesting we translate that into the Knesset, but I am suggesting that one of the things that could help shed light on the historical questions is to look not so much at the theoretical questions and answers about public law and constitutional law, but to look at the way these decisions were actually made in Jewish history. Uh, and then you'll still have to go back to the problem of analogy, a small group of the key, a small group of, of, of wealthy men making the decisions uh, for, you know, the local community of Frankfurt isn't necessarily going to line up one uh, to one um, to, you know, to the Knesset today, but it certainly might be a source of inspiration for thinking about analogies that are things that are not typically studied in. In the Beit Midrash, so that's one kind of set of sources, and and I want to think about two more sets of classical sources that might help address this issue, but also raise some questions of their own. The second source um, would be uh, the the. The Drashota the 11th of the Rans Drasha, medieval Spanish um, uh, commentator uh, on the Gemara, and also wrote a series of philosophical drashot, of philosophical sermons. And the 11th one uh, deals really um, quite explicitly with issues of constitutional law, and it raises a paradox that to me is very, very important to... Um, to questions of, of civic and public law according to halacha, and one that's very much accounted for in sources, the ron says, listen, if you look at halachic public law, particularly criminal law, it doesn't work. The conditions which are necessary for punishing a criminal, a violent criminal, with the laws of hatra of warning and the conditions on the um, on the status of the witnesses, um, there's all kinds of conditions on on the validity. Uh, the ability to convict a violent criminal. And in practice, he says, it's not going to work to create a good society, to follow the halakhah as it's described in the Gemara's in Sanhedrin. Uh, and he says that there are two parallel halachic systems, or kind of one halachic system and one semi meta halachic system, what he calls there the law of the shuftim, the laws of the judges, and the laws of the king, Mishpat HaMelech. Um, and the, the shoftim, the judges, follow the strict halacha, and they do what the books say, and they do what the texts say. Um, and if that doesn't work to create a good society, then the king steps in and, um, and does something else that does work, that violates or is different from the, the classical uh, sources um and what he's doing is kind of stating explicitly something that's already present in the Gemara and Sanhedrin and already uh not stated quite as clearly but pretty clearly by the Rambam um which is that when halachic public law doesn't work uh, there have to be institutional checks uh, and balances uh, workarounds. yeah kind of checks and balances um and 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 the ram's point which uh which is often again quoted opens up thinking about halachic public law in opens up all kinds of possibilities but also raises another one of these theoretical challenges that I want to raise it opens up the possibility of saying which which again you know appears in the discussion plenty of the discussion about about halakhic civil law is that there is room for the jewish representative government as a kind of modeled after the ron's king to build all kinds of rules and regulations to legislate in ways that are going to be effective. And that creates the the opportunity for those who are trying to push uh, Jewish-Israeli civil law and public law in a halachic direction to kind of say, we're prepared to simply accept the decisions of the Knesset, the decisions of, of the, the the legislation, uh, the legislature, because they kind of fit under the rubric of Mishpat Melach. We know they're going to work. And so you can discuss theoretically how halacha might address all kinds of questions. But in practice, we're going to... We're going to follow the, the legislation of the, of the Knesset. Now, this is both an advantage. It makes it possible to build a halachic system where the analogies break break down. But it also raises a challenge, which is if in crucial cases, what you're going to say is let the Knesset do what it wants or let some hypothetical uh, constitutional system do what it wants as Mishpat HaMelech. Well then, mahu ilu chachamim betakanata.
0: So he just. What's um, really Let what me break it down now. for the for the lay person in this situation. I'm including myself in that category. The ron essentially threw out all of the halachic literature on a particular topic and said, "Let the knesset." or we're, we're trying to figure out how we can relate to the world uh, today. Let this melech, quote-unquote, whoever he, he is, or she is today, make these decisions. They're not making them based on halachic... Stipulations, right? This is uh, this is an allowance to say throw out the halachic uh, topics we we discussed and debated until now, and let's go with the with the deen of the melech I, in like the very again little nomenclature I'm familiar with from this world. I'm thinking of like mm-hmm. dina de demalchut dina, meaning essentially the the laws of the governing body. That is enough. We'll give that the Torah hashkacha, right? That's that's your your kashra symbol, and we're fine. But that's really, really unwieldy because they could be making decisions based on values that are very different values than Torah values. Meaning, how's that kept in check?
1: It's kind of an an emergency escape hatch. Okay. Right? It's a way of saying, listen, we have this image. If we were going to start from nothing, we build a constitution based on Torah. Well, we already have this gigantic empty space, according to the run, where we're we're free to do whatever's going to work. Um, even if there are explicit halachot to the contrary. Um, Again, it's a bit of a leap by analogy to move from the king to the Knesset. But there's all kinds of other areas to get to a very similar kind of escape hatch, if you will. And that is the history of takanot, the history of community regulations, uh, which also appear in things like Pinkasim, but but not only, uh, where we kind of say, listen, there are all kinds of especially economic issues where the halakha just lets the community decide whatever it wants. Um, and, and in kind of in this empty space, then again, by way of analogy, um, theoreticians of a hypothetical halachic state uh, will say, well, okay, so based on the run or based on the idea of takana, under some circumstances, we can just kind of let the government do whatever it thinks it's going to work. And the run tries to address that. He says that the technical letter of the halachic law is there because he calls it um, a kind of pure hypothetical justice. Which doesn't actually work in the real world, um, but in an ideal world it would work and it would be great. Um, but we don't live in that ideal world, and that's his kind of way of saying, well, there are some some core values that stand below the halachic letter of the halachic system, which we might, for practical reasons, uh, choose to override or ignore under some circumstances. But I, I again, I, I agree with your phrase of the question, which is, well, how do you know that the practical measures that are articulated by the melech or by the takanot are really going to be good values?
0: So earlier you had said that there were three sort of uh, conceptions of how we can go about thinking of this. So I think we spoke about the first and the second. So what would, uh, the first were Pin Kasim were sort of these like communal ledgers. The second was the the Ran, and the third one is the Nitziv, I believe. That's where we're going.
1: The Nitziv on the command in Sefer Dvarim to appoint a king says, or what seems like a command to appoint a king, says something really quite remarkable. Um, he says... Um, when it comes to constitutional law, there can't be a binding single um, system that the Torah commands. And that's because times change, and people change, and communities change. And he makes a more general point, and he makes a more technical specific point. More generally, he says, you can't run a country unless the people are prepared to uh, accept that kind of government. And some people, some nations like monarchy and some nations don't like monarchy. And if you try to impose a monarchy on a nation that's not interested, it's going to backfire. And and that's true, he says, kind of of all constitutional questions. Um, and then he makes a, a more narrow technical point, which is all constitutional questions ultimately boil down to um, or include an element of pikuach nefesh, of potential loss of lives. Um, and so uh, the Nassif says uh, there that Whatever regulations you might put on a constitutional system, um, if that constitutional system isn't going to work, it's going to cost people lives, and then pikuach nefesh is going to overcome whatever mitzvah you might have had to uh, appoint a constitution. It's an intriguing kind. I don't know if it's you know. I don't know if it's convincing at the level of uh over there, but it raises a similar kind of paradox to the, to the one that we talked about in the run, which is that all of a sudden what the halakha asks us to do is just whatever works, not to build by analogy out of older sources. And, you know, this is what the halakha demands when it comes to war, or when it comes to, you know, regulating uh, uh, insider trading in the stock market. But rather, you really got to know when it comes to constitutional questions, what's going to work and what's not going to work. And so, uh, and and much of the question of what's going to work or not going to work just depends on what the people want.
0: Okay, so two thoughts. First of all, that source of the Nitziv, we actually brought up, I think it was already two years ago, uh, in episode 72. So I'm just putting that on everybody's map. Uh, We brought it up in a whole episode where we spoke about the Nitziv with with, uh, Simi Peters, so I recommend looking back to that, but I also just wanna say, and I remember from that conversation, that from a from an exegesis perspective, his comment here is actually phenomenal because he's responding to the grammatical difficulty where it's unclear whether the the grammar does not suggest whether this is a full commandment or it seems to be a possibility. There's also obviously a very diverse array of opinions about monarchy throughout the, the biblical uh, texts, but also here, it's not clear whether whether God is saying you should or shouldn't have it. So he says, obviously, based on his own political conclusions, well, it depends on what actually is gonna work with the people, meaning the Torah is leaving open the possibilities because that's not necessarily a, a, a blanket system that's gonna work. So it's actually a wonderful explanation from an exegesis perspective. I will just say my one question that comes up when you speak about the Nitziv is the question of values. Because if I look at, let's say, this the world today or a particular society today, and I say, okay, well, a lot of the values that are making their way into the public and certainly into the civic uh, civic conversation, but also into the government, are not necessarily ones that I really want informing government decisions. But these these sources that say, well, essentially you can just go with whatever the the ruach is of that time, is where are the Torah values then? How are we going to? Uh, in how are we going to make sure that, that make they make it somehow into the calculations. They're maybe not the overarching factor, but they're in there. Meaning, I don't really want, you know, what people want right now in two thousand and twenty-four deciding uh, to, to be the end all of the decisions of a lot of what's going on today, because I think that a lot of people have, have lost their way. I don't want that to be the the tone of government decision making.
1: That gets to the heart of some of these issues meaning just saying, well, what's going to work or what seems to be working in other places around the world? Well, maybe those places around the world, what, what qualifies as working? You know, is a functioning, totalitarian, economically uh, prosperous, <laughs> but totalitarian country, is that what we would call working? Right. And how do we know? And I'd ask that question as well um, of some of the people working on halachic, constitutional and public law. Make explicit the values that are stand... There's no way to interpret by analogy, by the earlier sources, without having some value system that's guiding your interpretation.
0: And what about, yeah. what about the institutions, as we sort of wind down our conversation, the institutions in Israel today that are quote-unquote defined as religious institutions? That gets even messier, because we have an institution that theoretically is supposed to represent halakha, but all of us know that they are definitely they definitely don't represent a broad range of halakha. They represent a certain slant of halakha. Uh, and who who gets to regulate that?
1: So that's also, and again, I want to be careful here not to... To, to raise theoretical questions not practical questions there are plenty of people who have who have spoken about the advantages and disadvantages of of the current uh you know formal chief rabbin the situations in which halakha does have government power state power to enforce halakhot uh on people um but i want to address another question uh, which i'm going to kind of Two friends of mine, the Chaim Seyman and Ellie Fisher paradox, based on, on Chaim Seyman's very, very important book called uh, Halakha, uh, published jointly by the Tikva Fund and 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 Princeton University Press, I think, a really masterful, masterful work of philosophy of Halakha, and a bunch of writings online by, by Ellie Fisher regarding uh, the chief rabbinate. And and both of them point to a kind of paradox that um, Halakha up to... The founding of the state has been pretty radically decentralized. That is to say, uh, as as Ellie puts it, uh, halachists had authority but little power. Um, they earned their authority by the fact that they were appointed by the community, that people respected them, that they were wise. Uh, certainly, there was no shortage of rabbinic politics in the past. I don't, you know, I don't mean to suggest that, but um, but they didn't have institutional power over. Um, over that many constitutional questions. Um, and, uh, and there were certainly circumstances under which people could Choose a Beit Din on the basis of, of what they wanted or choose a rabbi on the basis of what they wanted. Uh, what Chaim Waxman has called the sociology of psaak. Um, You know, people go to who they want to go to. And that's the sociological question, not only a halakha question. Um, and so what happens when I take this system that's been highly decentralized, that has had authority with no power or little power, and I give it power? All of a sudden, halakha has to fit in with a bureaucratic system. All of a sudden, we get things like um, like uh, appellate courts in halakha, like the possibility of appealing a decision of a court, which is not something that the halakha particul- was you know, particularly common in halakha up to now. All of a sudden, we get... Um, uh, the paradox of a situation in which a secular government, a secular state, formally secular, even if there are religious people there, are the constitutional grounds that are giving halakha its of, its power, and then the halakha becomes answerable paradoxically to the human, to the human and institutionally secular uh, constitution or whatever it is that Israel's government is built on. So applying halakha to a state like Israel requires remaking halakha in the form of a contemporary bureaucracy, which is foreign to how it's been in the past. Uh, And that's not just a change in form. That's not a small change. That's a big change because bureaucracies think very, very differently than individuals, uh, even institutions. Um, So are we changing the essence by fitting a halakhic system, an institution with halakhic power, uh, into a bureaucratic governmental system of the 20 and 21st century. Uh, you know, Chaim and Ellie raised this question and they say, well, on the surface, this is a pretty big challenge. Um, and they don't necessarily suggest how to solve it. But I think, you know, since I've put myself in the very easy position of being able to raise questions without having to answer them, um, I, I want to add that also to the list of questions that, that we ask explicitly when we think about halakhic public law.
0: Oh, okay, two two thoughts and response as we wind this down. First of all, I am curious, as someone who, you know, you're passionate about this topic, you're not working in it, I don't think, in a formal capacity. I am curious what you do think could, uh, which what could be healthy early responses to some of these questions? Because we can't really... I Meaning, if we want to just maintain the secular nature of Israel, and we don't have any aspirations for halacha to be at all involved in the government, that's obviously one answer to all these questions. Keep them separate. We don't want them together. They should maybe you, you can have religious representation in the government, but we do not want to involve halacha in government power and authority. Shouldn't be combined. That's obviously one approach. But I'm curious if you maybe that's what you espouse, or or if you have another if you have another thought on that topic. And I'll just say. I don't know if you have any particular thoughts about this but something that's coming to mind right now is you know I have I have uh, one friend in particular whose husband works in the uh, in the rabbinate division of the IDF and he's been working in again Loalenu, but in identification of bodies and that's like one of these really fascinating Spaces where there is both a combination, like halacha, I believe, has deeply informed the state policy in those regards. Again, if you know more on this topic, correct me because I, I don't know very much on the topic. And they're both, you know, involving about the most modern uh, technology for identifying body parts or DNA because unfortunately that's what we've been left with in a lot of cases now. So it's like this crazy combination of like rabbinics, the government, and, and and the Antiquities Department of Israel. I, I don't know, I, I mean, maybe there have been moments in the past where this has come up, but there's something about the acuteness of it right now that sort of rings as somewhat related to the conversation we're having uh, of, you know, is it the state who's deciding who gets buried in that and that we call it an actual burial because it's the state who also lets people know if they could sit Shiva. And there's something really, really muddled about that whole about that whole thing. Okay. Two massive questions. Take whatever you want from either one. Yeah. Of them. <laughs> two massive
1: questions. The second one of which I'm going to start with, and and just um, you know, articulate my level of awe of the people who are working in the military rabbinate to to apply halakha to new and creative circumstances under extraordinarily difficult conditions with an eye toward easing pain of people and bringing kvod hamet. Yeah. And if exactly. there's ev- any example of a situation in which this works, theoretical questions aside, it's that one. Yeah. And I have nothing but on admiration for the people who are doing that kind of work and thanks and for the Kiddush Hashem that they're involved in creating. Um, going back to the, the first question, which is kind of, well, wh- well what would you like to do, right? Um, yeah. um, which, you know, is, is a topic for another 45-minute conversation. But I want to I wanna quote a passage from the Abarbanel. Abarbanel okay. is well known as, a, as an opponent of the monarchy. Right. And, he,
0: he met a few that he didn't um, like, so it, it sort of made a bad yes. experience.
1: Yeah, he he was not a big fan of monarchs. And when it comes to Sukim and and passages in the Torah that describe monarchy in positive terms, he, he likes to invert them. Um, yeah. Again, just, just a place... 30-second
0: 30, thirty second interlude, just because I always like my listeners to know what we're alluding to here. Uh, Barbanel was basically the monarchial treasurer for both the monarchy in Spain and then he was kicked out later in Portugal. Later he also is it has kicked out from there. And he, if you read his commentary on the Book of Melachim and other places where monarchy is mentioned, he has a lot to say. It's very negative, And he also doesn't hide his personal bias in those commentaries, which is also just really fun always as a Commentator, that you like—they're not hiding their personality in their in their commentary. So, okay, sorry, go back to what you were going to say.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, and so when he in his comments, uh, I believe on Sefer Shmuel in the Shmuel Perket, when uh, when the people want to appoint a king and God is opposed to it, he he has a remarkable passage uh, in which he says, "In the days of the Milachim, in the days of the kings, uh, it was chaotic." because everybody did whatever they wanted. And Abarbanel knows that the last pasuk in Sefer Shoftim, that the last pasuk in the book of Judges, is Ein melech beinav how terrible this period of the Judges was because there was no king and there was chaos and anarchy. That is to say that Abarbanel is telling you that, um, that the psukim imply that monarchy is good, but I can tell you from experience that it's not. And he says that explicitly. He says, um, you know, Aristotle has all of these conversations about the nature of politics and about the value of monarchy, and here's the theoretical reasons to to be for monarchy. Um, uh, and then he says, but um, what good is Hekesh? What good is these logical syllogisms? Let's look at what's happening in the world. And he praises the uh, semi-democratic city-states of Renaissance Italy by name. Um, you know, he talks about Venice as being this fantastic city, and he talks mm-hmm. about Rome. or well, Rome, he says, the, the Caesar in Rome was terrible, but, but the semi-democratic city-states are wonderful. And he kind of makes it explicit that not only is he a pragmatist about politics, not only does he want to know what works, he's pragmatistic. He believes in pragmatism in principle. He wants to know what's going to work. And I think there's a very, very strong thread... We don't have the time now to get into all of the sources, but many of the Rishonim, many of the medieval commentators share that general sensibilities, even if they reach different conclusions. And I would say kind of my own take is I want what's going to make for a good, stable, fair, um, uh, unified society um, way more than I want to look at older sources, build out by analogy in the Beit Midrash what I think would be a good idea, and then just assume that that's what God wants. I want to know what works. Um, and in practice, I would say even a step further that under current circumstances, I personally, I'm not imposing this on anybody, but I'm a fan of Mendelssohn about this issue. Um, religion with power is not good for religion and not good for government. I personally would prefer much more voluntary religion and much less political power, what what Ellie Fisher and, and Chaim Seyman had talked about as, as being as being authority without without power. That's my personal take. And
0: wait, one more question, though, regarding values that you feel are not just universal values, but Torah values. Are those values that you would want to see inculcated into government laws, or you are okay with them being sort of relegated to the religious life?
1: I guess it would probably depend on how we're articulating those religious values. Okay. Fairness, kindness, justice, mm-hmm. respect of private property. I think that these are values that you're going to find in Torah sources. Um, you know, and I'd like to see when, when we talk what I think about what I think works, You know, those are things that I'd like to see happen. In this I am less appreciative, as you said early on, of the attempts to treat this more as a as a bait me drash problem than as a practical pragmatic problem.
0: Doctor Yol Finkelman, thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciated having you and hearing your voice and uh, and going off in a different direction today and giving us so much to think about. Really appreciate it.
1: My absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family.